This is James Moore, pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri, praying this audio message will be a blessing to you. For more information or to donate, please visit newlifekc.com. We are going to continue today in our summer road trip series that we kicked off last week. And if you weren't here last week, we looked at this road trip this guy by the name of Naaman took. He traveled out of country, got his passport, and he went in search of this guy named Elisha, who was this man of God, because Naaman himself, although he was a commander of an army underneath his soldier attire was a body that was riddled with a disease called leprosy. And he knew that if he could get to this prophet, he had been told that this prophet could provide healing for him. And so he set out on this road trip. And after about a hundred mile long road trip, he had the opportunity to meet with Elisha. And on that hundred miles, he had in his mind some expectations of what this was going to be like. What this prophet, this man of God would look like. Remember, this is before social media, this is before television. What's the guy look like? Is he tall? Is he short? Is he bald? Is he fat? We don't know. But he had in his mind that this prophet, whatever he looked like, had God's power with him. And when he came and met with him, they would make eye contact. It would be a special moment. Some special words would be had. There would be a waving of his hand and like abracadabra, his leprosy would disappear. So as he approaches Elisha's house, he has in his head expectations. And if you were here last week, you know that all of Naaman's expectations for this encounter, none of them were met. He never saw Elisha. Elisha was too busy to see him, so he just sent a messenger. The messenger told him what to do, and it didn't make sense to him. It wasn't what he thought. And after we heard the whole story last week, here was in a nutshell what we talked about, that there is a difference between anticipation and expectation. And so just as a quick recap, anticipation, as I shared last week, is an excitement for the unknown to become known. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm excited to see whatever it is. Good, bad, in between. There's an excitement for this future, for tomorrow. And as Christians, we should have this excitement that we don't exactly know how God's going to lead us tomorrow, but I'm excited to see the story that he's going to write with my life anticipation. And that's different because we use anticipation and expectation like as synonyms most of the time. But I'm trying to say there's a difference. And expectation is this. It's the belief that something specific will happen in the future. I'm not just generally excited. No, I'm limiting my excitement to one outcome. It's the outcome that I want to have happen. And I'm expecting this to happen. And if something different happens, something other than what I'm hoping happens, I'm not excited. And so there's this difference between anticipation and expectation, and my encouragement in last week's message was for you to live with more anticipation and less expectation because expectations can sabotage your future. Now, if you missed last week's message, I got good news for you. There's these cool devices today. They're called recording devices. And so we actually record it. So if you don't know, we have a podcast of all of our messages. And if that was a blessing to you, um, I want to encourage you to pass it on to be a blessing to somebody else. Not only is there an audio version, but there's a video version. And so we just don't want to take this in, but we want to give it to others. So if you missed it, check it out. If you were impacted by it, who could you share it with that it might be an encouragement with? Hop on there. Let's do that. Let's help as many people as we can. So so today we're going to continue in this summer road trip series. As I shared last week, and as a lot of you know, this past month, in the month of July, I have been on not one, but two road trips. 
Uh, the first road trip was with my dad going to Rochester, Minnesota, so I could meet with my neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. And according to my doctor, he said, I can't give you a better report. Um, all of my tests have came back clear, and the evidence of God's healing is still present in my body. And so I've been just praising the Lord, all right? So the second trip um, was to Colorado Springs, Colorado. So uh, I am the head cross-country coach at Smithville High School. I said, Varsity, it's time for us to step up our game. We're going to go train at altitude. It's going to be awesome. You're going to be sucking some air. Let's go do this. So we went to Enterprise. We rented two vehicles, and we were going to drive. And so I was responsible for driving one of the two vehicles. Um, on the road trip, I would prefer to be the driver than the passenger. I know some of you are out there. You're like, I have to have some control. And when you're traveling with teenagers, you want control. So I could controlled the radio. I controlled the view. It was great. So as we're heading out there, um, I quickly learned as the driver of this vehicle that one, I-70 is not a fun road to drive. There ain't nothing to look at. It's just more of the same. And then more of the same. And then you think it might change and it's not. And then you're like, when are the mountains going to show up? They don't show up. For a while, it's more of the same. So, so I-70 wasn't a lot of fun. But once I got into Colorado Springs, I found out that the traffic in Colorado Springs is a little more intense than the traffic in Kansas City. Um, and, and, and I found out that, you know, in Kansas City, we're pretty spoiled. Like, our entire road system is based on a grid. All the roads go the same directions. It's real simple. You can figure out where you're at. If you're north of the river, it's a north street. If you're south, it's a south street. All the numbers start at the river and get bigger the further you go. It's simple. In Colorado, they have these things called mountains that apparently got in the way. And so they said, screw the grid system. We're going to put roads wherever we want to put them. And so I had no idea where I was at. And as I'm driving these students around, I had this thought in my head. I would never, ever lead this trip. I would never be on this trip if there wasn't GPS. I needed GPS. I literally had no idea where I was at most of the time if it wasn't for GPS. In fact, some of you from the older generation would have been uncomfortable being with me if you knew how little I knew about where we were. I should have been able to figure out the north, south, east, west thing based on the mountains, I got all confused every day. I'm like, I don't know. I'm in the mountains. Which direction's north? I don't know. Where's the sun going down? The sun's going down early. It's behind a mountain. I don't know what's going on. So as we're going, every trip that we would go on, I would start by getting my phone out, and I would type in the destination I wanted, and then I would hit get directions. Then I would plug it into the car stereo, and a pleasant voice, never a reprimanding voice, would come on and give me pleasant directions. Continue straight until you see a stop sign. Turn left. And so I knew where to go. I never once was lost while I was in Colorado. I loved having my GPS. And some of you have been like, but, but Pastor Alex, what would you have done if your phone died? I wasn't concerned. I would have turned to one of the many teenagers in the vehicle who also possessed one of these and said, hey, my phone died. Type in these directions. Help me out. I never felt unsure of myself because I had my GPS. And there was a lot of positives to having the GPS. Some of you guys are probably like, no, nah, I like my Rian McNally. Listen, GPS is better than Rian McNally. Some of you are like, oh, here's the deal. So I'm driving. I knew the route I was supposed to go, and it told me to turn early. And I said, I wonder what that's about. And it knew that ahead of me, there was either road work or there was an accident, and it was going to take me 45 minutes longer to stay on the original path I had than to take the detour. I was so thankful for that. 
depending on the traffic, the time of day I was moving, it knew the best route to get me there. So for all of you people who are anti-technology, it was amazing. And I am going to now take a moment in today's message to tell you five things I'm learning about GPS. <laughs> this is not the main part of my talk. Rather, we're going to call this a new segment of my sermon. It's called the mini sermon. Get ready. Here we go. That's just to make sure you're staying awake. Here we go. Five things I'm learning about GPS. This is a mini sermon. Let's go. The number one thing I'm learning about GPS is that it is connected to a higher power. See, there's a cell phone tower somewhere that my phone connects to, and then that tower connects to like a satellite, and then the satellite connects to a system of like complex computers and maps with directions, and I don't know how it all works, but it's higher power than my head, and it is awesome, and I'm able to connect to it, and this higher power has the ability to provide directions for me to get from wherever I am to wherever I want to go. And in the same way, as Christians, we believe that the Bible the Holy Scriptures are connected to a higher power. We believe that the collection of ancient writings that we have put in, bound in a book called the Bible are actually inspired by God, that, that God actually breathed life into those words. That's just what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. It says that all Scripture is God-breathed. And so I'm learning about GPS that is connected to a higher power, kind of like my Bible is. But number two, I'm learning that GPS always knows where I am. It's awesome. You just hit your location, and it searches the world for you, and it always finds you. My GPS knows my current location. No matter how far I walk, no matter how far I run, no matter where I go, even if I'm hiding under a bush, it knows where I am. It knows my current location. And the Bible has inspired been inspired by God in such a way that it always knows your current location in life. No matter what season you're going through, no matter what trial you're going through, whether you're celebrating, whether you're in a hard time, whether you want to believe in God or not believe in God, the Bible can meet you right where you are. The Bible is relevant to your current location. You don't have to move somewhere to find it. No, no, it meets you where you are. It's pretty awesome. Number three, I'm learning about GPS, that GPS is never lost. How awesome is that? It's never like, we don't know where you are. It, it doesn't do that. When GPS first came out, I remember people that I knew, they used to try to trick their GPS. They were going to try to get lost with their GPS. And I don't know what they were hoping for, like if the voice would say, we have no idea where you are, start praying. I don't know what they were hoping for from their GPS, but they would try to get lost with it. But listen, with the Bible, the Bible's more reliable than GPS. And with the Bible, we are never lost. The truth of the Bible is never out of season, it's never out of date, and it's never lost. And number four, I'm learning about GPS, that no matter how many wrong turns I make, it knows how to get me back onto the right path. When I first started driving with GPS, you guys remember like when GPS wasn't on your phone and you had to like go buy like the Garmin unit and it was big and you had to plug it into the cigarette ladder and you had to like shove it to your, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. They were great. Um, I didn't like a, a woman's voice telling me what to do. So I don't know if I have like mommy issues or what, but I was like, I am not turning left ahead. I am turning right. Take that GPS. And then I don't know if you remember what would happen in the old days with GPS. You remember what it would say to you? Recalculating, recalculating. It's amazing. Like the same thing happens with God. Like you can make wrong turns. You can disobey God. 
and it just recalculates to your new location and finds you an alternative path to try to reach the same destination. Maybe, maybe you've screwed up in life. Maybe you've made some poor decisions. Listen, the Bible provides directions for everyone to return back to the feet of Jesus. And number five, this is the final thing I'm learning about GPS, is that it really all comes down to trust. See, I've noticed some of your faces as I've talked about GPS, and you're like, you can't trust that GPS, Pastor Alex. What's the matter with you? You need to know some stuff. You're just a young pup. All right, so I get it. I get it. But it really, it all comes down to trust. You know, sometimes when I do get directions from my GPS, it doesn't make sense because I think I know where I'm supposed to go, and the directions it's giving me doesn't seem like it's going to get me there. But it really comes down to trust. Sometimes I find myself driving on new roads when I follow GPS. I find myself driving by places I didn't even know existed. But if I trust the GPS, I've always found that I end up at the correct destination. And the same is true of the Bible. It all comes down to trust, that if you will trust that the Bible is giving you reliable directions to get from your current location to the destination God has for you, you will arrive there in time. If you trust the GPS and follow its directions, that is living by faith. And some of you say, I don't have as much faith in GPS as you, Pastor Alex. I get it. But I hope that you have faith in the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but that was a great mini-sermon, wasn't it? Come on. Some of you are like, I can just go home. I'm satisfied. That was so good. Like, I don't need no more. Listen, that was just a good appetizer. You ever ruined your meal on an appetizer? So if you do ruin your meal on an appetizer, you still have the main course coming, and the main course is still coming. And so here's what you do. You can box up your main dish. I already shared with you, it's going to be recorded. Just remember to get it out of the fridge, microwave it, pray, God help this be real, and then get this. But if you're, if you're satisfied, great. Just sit back. The rest of this is for the guy next to you, all right? This is the real message. Are we ready? This is so good. We're on a road trip. This past month, I have been on two road trips, one to Colorado, I'm super grateful for my GPS, and the other one was to Minnesota with my dad, where I received great news from my doctor. Now, here's the thing about going to Minnesota. This was my sixth trip to Minnesota in the past two years. Um, the first time I went up there was with my wife, Missy, um, and then the other five trips have been with my dad. There's something about having multiple kids that makes it hard for your wife to pull away and go out of town with you. So dad was readily available. So mom's, my, my wife stayed with the kids and did mom thing. Dad came with me. We did the road trip. And what's cool about dad is dad doesn't want to ride in my car. So he's like, let's take my car. And I'm like, that's great. Your car is nicer than my car. So we always have a nice smooth ride. We head up there. And the route from here to Minnesota um, has become familiar to us. You When you drive it, six times, like you're pretty familiar with it. And let's be honest, it's not a difficult drive. Um, it's almost like I-70, except you're in Iowa. There ain't a whole lot to see. You're just driving north instead of west. Um, and, and so it's 390 miles from here to there, but 330 of those miles are on the same road. They're all on I-35. So if you can navigate to I-35, you are pretty much going to get to Minnesota. If you're coming home, get back on I-35 and don't deviate. You will get home. It's, it's pretty easy. 85% of the drive is on the same road. Now, because my dad and I have traveled to Minnesota more than one time, uh, it's become a familiar route to us. No surprises. Um, we honestly don't need GPS to get there. We, we know the route. We don't have to have it. We have no fear of getting lost. 
we know the road. It's, it's good. Now, with that said, I still hook up my GPS. <laughs> and you say, why? Because GPS is awesome. That's why. Because when I plug it in, it says, you know what? I know exactly where you are. Because when you're driving on a road trip, you don't know where you are. But the GPS does. not so I like to say, oh, we're in this town. Or, oh, we've changed states. Or, oh, this is coming up. But my favorite part of the GPS is at the bottom. It gives you an ETA estimated time of arrival. This is a six-hour trip, and I'm watching that clock count down because I want to get to where I'm going. And I know, hey, we only got two hours left. This is great. How many miles are left? It's wonderful. I love the comfort that the GPS has. So remember, familiar route, easy drive, stay on I-35. That's it. So here's the story. (laughs) I got to see my doctor early. What a miracle of God. When's the last time your doctor saw you early? I went and checked in. I was like, I'm here early. I'll check in. He got me back there and saw me before my appointment time. I was like, wow. If anybody questioned if there was a God, there is. I'm not waiting on the doctor. This is wonderful. Here we go. So the doctor saw me early. He said, this is a great report. Did some checks and tests with me. He said, you're good. I'll see you, you know, like in a year, maybe. Like, get out of here. So we hit the road. I was like, this is so great. I plugged in my GPS because that's what I do. And I looked and I said, you know what? We're going to get home before the kids go to bed. So I text Missy and said, hey, good news. I'll be able to be home to help put our boys to bed. And so we took off on the drive, making good time. We were having a wonderful time. And my dad, I don't know how many hours in or how far we were into the trip, but we were on I-35. We'd made the main road. You've just got to stay on it to get home. My dad says, hey, son, would you mind disconnecting your phone? Like, turn off the GPS. Because in his car, if my phone's connected, his phone's Bluetooth doesn't work. And he wanted to make some phone calls. So I turned it off. I unplugged it. And now his phone's connected. No GPS. And he is going to make some phone calls. And it was great. He wanted to, you know, have some ministry calls, spend some time. And if you know my dad, he likes to talk. And when you're on a road trip, there's nothing on his agenda that's coming up that would cause him to need to wrap the conversation up early. You know what I mean? Because you're just in a car. So these calls lasted maybe a little longer than they normally would have, which was not a big deal. He's just talking. That's him. Let him be. So we got done. He still had words to say, so he starts talking to me. So we're in a great conversation. We're just chatting along, and all of a sudden, he says, son, where are we? Well, I wasn't ready for that question. I thought we were on our way home, Father. Uh, You are driving the vehicle. I am just a passenger. I've not really been paying attention. Uh, What do you mean, where are we? And so um, I quickly grabbed my phone, reconnected it to the GPS, uh, turned it on, and and, and the first thing that I noticed was that my ETA was no longer going to get me home before the kid's bedtime. Um, Instead, we're going to be rolling into old Kansas City an hour and a half after the kids are already in bed. And so my father and I first thought, is this the twilight zone? What happened? Where are we? And so, of course, I I began to look, and and my dad did not stay on I-35 past Des Moines, but instead, we're cruising on I-80 headed to Omaha. (laughs) And of course, at this moment in time, I look at my dad and say, what did you do? And he looks at me, and... 
He's had a lot of faces that I've seen growing up. This one was different. It was almost like a mood ring that was changing in real time. The first look was one of disbelief. Did I really do that? Then it, then it changed to frustration. I can't believe I did that. And then it kind of, you know, softened a little bit to one of humility of realizing I'm the guy that messed up and I can't fix it. So the first question he asked me was, well, okay, well, well how do we get back to I-35? How do we get back to the original path and route that we're supposed to be on? And so that was a great question. Um, Unfortunately, we had deviated so far from the original route, it would have been longer for us to turn around to go back to I-35 than to continue all the way to Omaha and grab I-29 back home. We had been lost longer than either of us realized. So the GPS, the GPS said, hey, to get home the fastest way from your current location, where you're finding yourself now, you're going to take an alternative path. The destination is the same, but the route is going to change. And so my dad and I had an extra hour and a half in the car together to feel the tension of driving extra miles with high gas prices uh, on an alternative route than we planned, seeing things that we didn't care to see. Um, and, and we both hated that this new route was going to get us home later than we planned, but the truth was, was that there was no one for us to blame. Like, we couldn't, like, point the finger at somebody. It was totally on us, and we had to endure and live the consequences. Mistake one, I disconnected the GPS. Number two, we ignored countless signs telling us that we were headed in the wrong direction. I don't know if you've been on the highway before, but the signs are massive. They let you know where you're going. And then if you miss those, they have what's called little mile marker signs. I think they're like one every tenth of a mile. We were probably 50 miles off of the right path, which means we passed over 500 signs <laughs> indicating what road we were on, but we did not see the signs. Do you know why we didn't see the signs? Because our minds were preoccupied with other things, and we were not paying attention to the drive. How did we miss the signs? I think we would all agree we weren't looking for them. There were signs that were coming. We were not looking for them. And, and I think the truth of the matter is, is that we were distracted. Everybody say distracted. distracted. Now, when I tend to think of distracted drivers, I tend to think about people who are doing things, like reading or sending a text message. Like, they're distracted doing this. Or they're distracted drinking their hot coffee and not spilling it on them. Or they're, you know, distracted trying to do their makeup in the mirrors. Like, they're distracted and they're doing things. But... But distractions can occur with not just doing things, but distractions can occur just in your own mind with where your thoughts are. Um, have you guys ever been driving somewhere, maybe like on the way home from somewhere, and you get home and like you stop and you think, and you really don't remember the drive there much? Like you drove by a lot of things, but you don't really remember what happened. There's probably some details, and then you're like, you know, I don't think I was really focused on the way home. Like, it happens to us. Then there's actually a name for this. It's called highway hypnosis. And, and it falls under this category of things called automaticity, which was a new word for me. But here's what it is. Automaticity is the ability to do things without thinking about them. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, you can do things, and you're not having to think about it. Um, 
it's when you can focus your mind on one thing while undertaking an automatized activity. My dad was able to engage in conversations on the phone and conversations with me because he didn't have to engage with driving. It was just automatic. It was automatized. It was just taking place. This is what happened on our road trip back from Minnesota. Driving became automatized. It was familiar. It was a known route. It was almost as though we shifted into autopilot. And our focused attention moved into conversation, moved into phone calls, moved into other things. As I've been thinking about this idea of automaticity since we got lost, the ability to do things without thinking about them, or, or highway hypnosis specifically with driving, I think that this same idea that we can do things without thinking about them can actually impact our relationships. See, I've been married for 12 years. 12 years a slave. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's the only thing I can think of. I, I've been married for 12 years. It's been wonderful. It's been great. Um, I'm the best husband ever. Except I, I found that, that I think marriage hypnosis is a thing. Um, see, there's a point in my relationship with my wife in which I began to automatize some things. Um, I caught myself, you know, almost like an autopilot while she's talking. I don't know if anyone can um, understand where I'm coming from. Um, on the outside, it appears as though I'm listening. Um, it appears as though I'm engaged in the conversation. It appears as though I'm tracking with the complex, intricate thought processes of my wife. But in reality, I'm in autopilot. Um, that has become automatized. It looks like I'm listening, but my mind is somewhere else. And she started calling me out on this. She would say, Alex, what did I just say to you? And I'm really good about repeating the last sentence. Two sentences ago, no idea. And so she's starting to call me out on this, and she's like, you're here, but you're not really here. Um, you're, you're present, but you're not really present. Um, and, and, and this is even trickling over into my relationship with my kids. Like, I'm there, but am I really there? And so, like, early on, like, when I was first dating Missy, when we first got married, like, I was super observant. I mean, I was paying attention to the girl. I was, like, engaged in the conversation. I wanted to get to know her. I wanted to know how she thought. I wanted to know how she felt. I wanted to know what she dreamed of. I wanted to know what made her happy. I wanted to know what made her sad. I was interested. I was engaged. I was pursuing her and focused on her. But over the years, my anticipation, my excitement for the unknown to become known has kind of faded because what was once unknown, well, has become known and Missy has moved from unfamiliar to familiar. And I began to anticipate what her response is going to be. I began to guess what she would say or do before she said or did it. And before I knew it, I've been guilty of placing my relationship with her into an automatized activity. I'm married, sure, but I have my mind and my energy focused somewhere else. Familiarity. When you become familiar with something, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. When you first become familiar, something is good because it kind of minimizes stress. You're not worried about it. Uh, it conserves some energy. You've got more emotional energy. And it can sometimes produce confidence, like, I'm familiar. We're good. I've been here before. I've done this. But familiarity also provides intimate feelings without closeness. And this is the biggest thing. Familiarity eliminates curiosity. 
And that makes you non-observant. And so in my marriage, I found that I have become fairly familiar. And as a result, I've not been observant to the relationship. I've not been observant to my wife. I've not been paying attention to the signs she's been throwing my way. I think I know what route I'm on, but there's signs that are telling me otherwise. But I'm not observant, so I don't see the signs. And so this relational hypnosis, I believe, not only can affect marriages and parenting and even friendships, but I think that it can even extend to our relationship with God. See, when you first come to faith, when you first are introduced to Jesus, when you first come into relationship with him and you ask him to forgive you of your sins and you realize that you've been given a gift that you don't deserve, like you have been awakened spiritually to him and there's a spiritual rebirth that takes place, you're engaged in the relationship. You are all about Jesus. You can't believe what he's done for you. It's remarkable. It's incredible. And you're in awe of who he is. When the church doors are open, you're there. If your pastor said you need to read the Bible every day, you read the Bible every day. And your curiosity to who God is and how he works and how does he relate to humanity, like you were leaning in because you wanted to know who he was. You wanted to know why he created you. You wanted to know hard things. Why is there evil in the world? When are you coming back? Why are things this way? You were leaning in, interested in relationship with him. You're pressing in. You're asking God to reveal himself to you. But then, I don't know, time went by. Distractions came. Your curiosity and observantness with God kind of got redirected and you, maybe without even realizing, began to automatize your relationship with God. Your, your faith became this thing that happens. Of course we go to church, it's Sunday, but I'm not really engaged, I'm not really pursuing, I'm not really observant, but I'm doing it. Yeah, I read the verse of the day on my phone because I just, I, I do that. Yeah, I pray before every meal, it's just become the thing that I do. I don't think about it, I don't even know if it's a prayer, but it is a ritual. I just, I do these things. Like my dad driving, my dad followed the rules of the road. He wasn't going to get pulled over by a cop. He stayed in between the lines. He turned his blinker on when he passed cars. He did what he was supposed to do from a rural perspective. And I think when we automatize our faith and we automatize our morality, we do all the things that we're supposed to do. We follow the rules, but it's just absent of relationship. Sure, we attend church regularly. We save K-Love and Air One and other Christian radio stations to one, two, three buttons on our radio because we're good Christians. You know, we do what we're supposed to do from a rural perspective. But from a relational perspective, we're, we're absent. We're not present. We're not really there. Our minds are preoccupied with other things. And the things we're preoccupied, let's be honest, they're not always things that are bad or evil. They're just distractions that aren't Jesus. A lot of people have automatized their relationship with Jesus and they're distracted by politics or CNN, or Fox News, or what their buddy posted on Facebook. They're distracted by work and success and accomplishment, or they're distracted by, I need to pay our bills, and there's a pursuit of money, and I need to pay attention to what the stock market's doing, and we're in inflation time, and I don't know what our future's going to hold. Like, there's distraction. Like, I know, like, of course, I'm not dismissing God. I know he's important, and I know he's real. It's just, I can keep that going and put my attention into my own entertainment, or into my own comfort, or into my own pleasure. The list of distractions that we could make, the list could be endless of distractions, but the root problem isn't the distraction. 
The real issue is that you automatized your relationship with God. You, you've not been paying attention. You've neglected your number one priority. So the question I have today, as we think about this, is have you automatized your relationship with God? Is it something that was maybe more vibrant and alive and you're paying attention and observant and leaning into in the past than you are now? If so, maybe you have automatized it. And if you're starting to feel like, oh, maybe I have, here's some of the emotions that you're going to go through. It's the same things that my dad did with his mood of changing. There's first disbelief. Did I really take God and put him on a back burner? I committed my whole life to him. I've trusted him. I was all in. Is it possible that I have placed that back? Is, is that, it's like disbelief, but then that disbelief, it changes into frustration when you realize, no, I have been. I've been coming to church, I've been going through the motions, but I really haven't been present. I haven't had my heart involved. Like I'm guilty of being what Jesus accused the Pharisees of, that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I've been coming to church, I've been singing songs, but my heart's not here. I can't believe I've done that. And I hope that there might be some frustration that you're feeling, if that's true. But the hope is that you're going to come to this place of, of humility, of saying, you know what? I'm not perfect. And I have messed up. And you own it. I am that guy. I ain't perfect. I'm in progress. I'm still being transformed. If you find yourself in this place saying, you know what, I think I may have automatized part of this. I may have, I may have gotten distracted in my relationship with God. You might be like my dad and ask, how do we get back to the original route? How do we get back to how it was? As a kid who grew up in church, I was always trying to be like, well, how can I feel like I did when I was at like that church camp or that church conference? Woo I want that every day. How do I, how do I revive that? And I, I was talking with with Greg here about the message last week, and he said, you know, the problem that we have a lot of times is that we're excited to see how God's going to move in our life. There's an anticipation for it, and then God moves, and you know what we all say? Okay, now I know how God moves, and we look for him to do the same thing again and again and again, but our God's into doing things new, and he rarely does the same thing twice. And so we begin to place expectations that God's going to move the way that he moved last time. We even sing songs like that, move like you did last time. But wait a second, he is doing something new today. How do we get back to the original route? Well, let's be honest. Sometimes the original route's no longer available. It's no longer a viable option. Sometimes we've deviated too far. Sometimes we're just in a different place. But here's the good news. God can provide a restoration of routes to get to where you need to be. Sometimes he'll get you back to that path, but other times he'll write a new story for you to end up where he wants you. So here's my challenge for you this morning as we try to wrap this message up in the next 10 minutes. Here's the challenge. If you're distracted in living in a relational hypnosis with Jesus, number one, you have to admit that you're going through the motions. You gotta be honest with yourself. You gotta evaluate, ask yourself the question, am I really engaged in this or has this just become religion? Am I engaged in a relationship with him? I know I'm supposed to, I know it's the right answer, but am I just going through the motions? If so, admit it. I mean, I'm, just, I'm going through the motions. I feel like God's distant when I pray. I feel like my prayers stop at the ceiling. I don't even know if he hears me. Admit where you're at, that's number one. Number two challenge is reconnect. 
reconnect to the higher power. When I found out I was lost, I replugged my GPS in to find out where I was at because the GPS is connected to a higher power. You need to connect to the higher power. His name is Jesus. He's the only hope for you. He's the only way to direct you. And his Holy Spirit will guide you. He'll use the scriptures, the Bible, as a GPS to help navigate you. But you have to reconnect. If you don't reconnect, you're going to try to do it in your own power and you're always going to screw it up. You have to reconnect to something higher than you. And Jesus loves you. He died on a cross so that you could be in right relationship with him so that he could guide and direct your life through the power of his Holy Spirit. You got to admit where you're at. Number two, you got to reconnect. But number three, tough one, you got to confess. You got to confess. So often we think, no, it's just me and Jesus. I'll work it out with him. No, no, no. He said, like, if you're going to be healed of your sins, you need to confess your sins to one another. So here's the challenge. Will you be willing to talk to somebody? It could be your spouse. It could be somebody in your family. It could be somebody in the row set next to you and say, you know what? They don't, it doesn't matter what your distraction is. The confession is, I've somehow automatized my relationship with Jesus. It's become secondary. It's, I've, lost, I've lost what I once had. That's the confession. Would you confess it? See, I think that if we are willing to admit where we're at, reconnect with God and confess, we together as a community can move forward in the direction that God wants. So today I want to end this message with just a little bit of Bible encouragement. See, when my dad missed the turn to stay on I-35 on our road trip from Minnesota, he wouldn't probably say this, but there's a little bit of beating himself up. Like, I can't believe I did that. Like, how could I do this? And he would replay it in his head. Like, I'd hear him. He'd be like, ah, I can't believe that we're having to do this. I haven't, and of course, you know how my dad is. I haven't made a mistake in 20 years. I can't believe I made this mistake. (laughs) But what he did is what we all eventually need to do. He moved the spotlight of his focus off of his past mistake. If you just dwell on that, what benefit is there there? If you keep the spotlight of your focus on the past, you always have a dim future. But he eventually shifted the focus from his past mistake admitted it, owned it, confessed it, and he began to focus on the future. We're going to take this route from here on out. We all need to make that shift. Every one of us responds differently to failure. When you fail, what do you do? When he failed, what did he do? When we fail, here's the thing, just because you fail doesn't make you a failure. Like, it's not your identity like your identity is different than that, we have to now learn how to move forward. So if you've automatized your relationship with God, you might feel guilty about it. You might be beating yourself up. I can't believe I did that. I've done this before even. Maybe you feel a sense of shame or maybe embarrassment, and you might be tempted to really beat yourself up over it. But, but here's the line. The only way that failure can have the last word in your life is if you choose to let it. We serve a God who's able to take our defeats and our missteps and still use us to bring glory to his name. And the story of the Bible is time and time again, people who screwed up and screwed up big, who God still met them where they were, recalculated their destination, and still brought them where he wanted. So there's three people I'll just quickly talk about. Number one, David. If you were in class this morning with Miss Susie for our coffee and community at 9 o'clock, we talked about David and how he messed up. you got to realize David in 2 Samuel, 
He was anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. Like he had God's favor on him. He was called by God. In fact, he was established as the king. He was doing what God called him to do. And in the midst of being where God had appointed him, he chose to commit adultery. He went and had sex with another man's wife and she got pregnant and he didn't want to get caught. So he went and had her husband murdered. Yeah, that's in the Bible. That's not like a soap opera, a TV show. It would make a good TV show, but holy smokes. Like, this is in the Bible. This was the guy that God was using, and he deviated from it. He somehow or another got distracted by adultery and murder and forgot that God had given him everything he had, dismissed God from his life, wasn't even thinking about God, but he was caught up in these distractions, which were sinful distractions, horrible things. Did David escape the consequences of his sin? No. There were still consequences for your sin. Every action has a consequence. But what was able to happen is that God was able to redeem him. And so here's the encouragement. Although God's forgiveness doesn't save us from the consequences of our conduct, God will still use us if we abandon the behavior and return to him. And so David repented, confessed that it was wrong what he did, and made a move back to God and said, purify my heart, cleanse me from this God, Renew, remove from me this iniquity, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. It's where these psalms come from. And God met him in that place and was able to recalculate and redeem him. Now here's another example, Peter. Peter was the loudmouth disciple who was close to Jesus um, in Luke chapter 22 and in John chapter 21, we read um, that Peter, when Jesus is getting ready to be crucified, Jesus has been illegally arrested and he's being taken before this evening um, uh, council and it, it, the whole thing's illegal. It's not what it's supposed to be, but it's getting kind of scary because you got people with weapons and swords and they're arresting. And Peter, who said at one point in time, Jesus, I would stand and die for you, all of a sudden finds himself cowering back, denying Jesus, saying, I don't even know who he is. Teenage girl said, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? I remember you. He, no, no, no. And he starts cursing and saying, no, no, I'm not one. I'm not with him. Peter denied Jesus three times. Can you imagine if there's any encouragement here? It's that failure doesn't disqualify you, even if you've been following Jesus for some time. Peter messed up. Jesus was crucified the next day, but three days later he came back to life. When he came back to life, he made a point to go back to Peter, and he restored him three times. He said, do you, do you love me? Of course I love you. No, no, do you love me? Do you love me? He asked him three times this idea that he's redeeming him from his three denials. And if someone like Peter, who walked with Jesus faithfully for three years, who sat literally, physically at the feet of Jesus, if failure doesn't disqualify him, your failure doesn't disqualify you, even if you've been following Jesus for some time. And the final encouragement is Thomas. Thomas was one of the disciples of Jesus that followed him for about the same amount of time that Peter did. See, Thomas doesn't have a whole lot of... Uh, screen time in the Bible. He wasn't loud. He wasn't big. He wasn't that. He was there. He witnessed the miracles. He knew Jesus. He spent time with him. But after Jesus had died, was resurrected, 
Jesus was on his return tour. He was going around to everybody he knew, showing himself to him. Well, Thomas, for whatever reason, wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus came back. All the disciples were like, Jesus came back, Thomas. You weren't here. It was amazing. He's alive. And you remember what Thomas said? Whatever. I do not believe you. I'm not going to believe you unless I see him and I touch him. And yeah, didn't happen. Jokesters, like, you ain't getting me. I may have been global before, but don't mess with Jesus. Like, he ain't, no. And, and as you think about it, you know, Thomas has been called Doubting Thomas throughout forever. You know, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. But, but here's the thing about Thomas that's so interesting is that Jesus made a special appointment with Thomas. And see, Thomas had followed Jesus for three years, and I don't know what he had in his head, what expectations he had developed about what the outcome of following Jesus would be like, but all of his expectations were being crushed. And in the midst of his disillusionment about what the future would be, in the midst of his disappointment and what he thought was going to happen, in the midst of grieving the loss of this man that he chose to follow wholeheartedly left his home, left his family to follow. In the midst of all of that, he just couldn't believe these disciples that Jesus had returned. He just, he was blind to that. He just couldn't see the signs that were coming by him. Everybody was telling him it was true. He couldn't receive it until Jesus himself showed up. And when Jesus showed up, he met with Thomas and said, Thomas, I am real. Put your hand in my side. Put your hand in these scars. I am alive. And here's what's the cool thing about Thomas and the encouragement. Even if you've been distracted by your own thoughts, your grief of expectations of the future, an encounter with Jesus can change everything. See, tradition tells us that Thomas, the doubter, traveled outside of the known country that he was a part of. He traveled to the people of India to share about Jesus. And his commitment to Jesus was so strong that he shared the name of Jesus with a people group that had never known who Jesus was and that he actually died for the cause of Christ while in India. And if you grew up Catholic, you would know him as St. Thomas of India. That's Thomas. He was forever changed because of an encounter with Jesus. So I want to encourage you with three stories. You've got Thomas, you got Peter, you got David. They all screwed up but God was able to recalculate them. I want to encourage you, if you screwed up, admit it. Admit it. And then what are we supposed to do? Reconnect to the higher power and then confess. And if you do so, I believe God will redirect you and redeem your life story. I said it before, I'll say it again. The only way that failure can get the last word in our life is if we choose to let it. We serve a God who is able to take our defeats and missteps and still use us to bring glory to his name. This morning, I'm going to close with a prayer. Let's put the prayer up here. I wrote it out. I'm going to pray this in just a second. I want you to see it, and then I'll invite you if you want this to be your prayer to pray. We're just going to simply direct our prayer to God. We're going to ask him, forgive me for ignoring you and help me to live distraction-free. Change my heart and my attitude, not just the outward behavior, Please help me, please give me, actually, a renewed desire. How cool is that God can give us desires? We're going to ask God to give us a new desire in our heart to pursue him in relationship. And at the end, we're going to say that this isn't about us feeling better about us. It's not about our glory. 
not about my glory, it's for his glory. So if you want to make this prayer your own, I want to invite you to pray this along with me, and you direct this to God. God, forgive me for ignoring you and help me to live distraction-free. Change my heart and attitude, not just my outward behavior. Give me a renewed desire to pursue you in relationship for your glory, not mine. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.